We have a lot of respect for people who practice different religions, and our purpose with this podcast is to simply identify and deconstruct problematic evangelical ideologies. Oh, hi there. I'm Candice. I was just working on situating my lived experience into a salient critique of ideology. Let's see if this thing works. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Seems like it needs a little more work. But that's the exciting part, because you never know what you'll discover along the way. But don't take my word for it. Why don't you come along for today's adventure in ideology? Hi. Now, today's episode deals with complex subject matter involving a young child dying of cancer. The writer's adventures in Odyssey back in 1988, thought it was a good idea to warn people about the episode on which our episode is based. And and we agree with that. Even if today, Focus on the Family and its media organization routinely denounces trigger warnings, pronouns, and the general perceived dangers of so-called counterculture. So if you don't have an adult in the room, go get one now. Got it? Good. Welcome to Adventures in Ideology. If you're new, this is the show where we listen to and discuss the radio drama Adventures in Odyssey, created in 1986 by Focus on the Family and still running today. If you were raised evangelical, you're probably familiar with it. And if you were not, prepare for some insights into a bizarre subculture. Adventures in Odyssey was created with the express purpose of presenting the ideals of the Focus on the Family organization to children. And this show serves to analyze the tacit assumptions and grave implications put forward by Focus on the Family and its political and theological allies. We listened to the show and loved it as kids, and now we're listening to it with a more discerning ear, trying to identify and deconstruct the problematic ideals that we were exposed to as children, and look how those beliefs have played in our lives today. We're so excited you're here. My name is Stephen, and I'm joined by our special guests. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Elena Stalwick. Hi, I'm Mitch. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and uh, long-time listeners of Ventures in Ideology will remember Mitch and Elena from previous episodes. And uh, they're joining me here today. You might notice something a little unusual. Um, It's me, Stephen, the editor. Candace and Karis are not here. Uh, That's because this episode sucks, and they didn't want to do it. Uh, And I don't blame them. So (laughs) they subcontracted it out. Um, and we're so happy they did because we hate ourselves in a way that yeah, they we're, don't. we're the cognitive biohazard cleanup crew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Mitch and Elena, thank you so much for being here and, uh, shouldering this terrible, terrible episode. Yeah. A, a curse on you for asking me to do this. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of my special <laughs> skills to uh, deconstruct, <laughs> do it on a daily basis. We have we have a we have a post we have a postmodernist and two Marxists in the house, so this is gonna this is gonna be <laughs> fun. <laughs> all right, <laughs> uh, all right. So I suppose you start with summarizing the episode. Uh, this is not my strong suit, but we're gonna try. So, essentially, the episode focuses on young Donna. We know Donna from previous episodes. Uh, but she's going with Mr. Whitaker to visit her friend, Karen, who's in the hospital. Rumor has it, she's sick with bone cancer. Whit and Donna visit 
young Karen in her, at her sickbed. And they're introduced to uh, the, Karen's roommate, a Miss Murray, who hits on wit. And it's a bit uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> uh, but she thinks, she thinks she's, she believes him to be quite handsome. And he's in turn quite flattered. And of course, Karen, Karen for being, uh, I don't know, nine, ten-year-old child. Where we age these kids at. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, for being like, yeah, nine. Yeah. Between the ages of eight and ten. For being such a young person in what must be incredible pain. Um, It's just the portrait of of nobility and... And Joe. aggressively chipper. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then she's, she's very... Yeah, she's just so affable. And she's a gracious host to everyone in the in the hospital room with her and it's deeply upsetting. <laughs> uh, yes. She also uh, puts on the authorial voice hat and like, as they're, as they're walking to the hospital, wit is like talking about how, you know, maybe it's not so bad to be separated from TV. And when they're in there, she's like, Oh, I'm so happy to be here with all of my books and not watching TV. If I have to watch another soap opera, I'll just die, which is like, you know, very, very true to children, uh, especially young children who are sick. You know, they just love to do. No, but daytime TV is super bad. Like, (laughs) fuck daytime. Daytime TV, and all children know this, daytime TV is the worst. Okay, okay. We forget in the age of streaming. (laughs) Yeah, but he sets it up before they go to the hospital. He's like, he he's does. like, oh, you got to bring all these books because books are so much better than TV, you know. And I'm, I was like, oh yeah, there he goes. Like, got to get it in there. Well, and, and they're explicitly like denouncing like soap operas, but to uh, learn about how books can be so much worse than soap operas, check out our Patreon content. <laughs> <laughs> Where you, you will learn of uh, relationships far worse than any soap opera. Yeah. Anyway, we can talk about why it's interesting after, but <laughs> yeah. So, so they go, and Karen's very, again, disconcertingly chipper. And um, before Karen, before Donna goes, Karen places one request: don't let them give away my spot in the fall festival. Because I guess there's a festival, there's a variety show coming up, and she has a slot in that where she intended to do it where she intends to do a dance and she doesn't want to give it away so donna goes back to school and conveys to the teacher and the i guess the child who is the director <laughs> don't give away her spot <laughs> um and then the, and the kid's like i don't know i'm a pretty big showbiz guy <laughs> but the kid I, is so I, mean. yeah i heard she can't even walk much less dance <laughs> god then he like they says excuse me and takes a call on his cell phone <laughs> <laughs> to talk about how he's crushing it. Uh, <laughs> no, I added that part. You but, yeah, liar! Yeah, that's this, yeah. So Hollywood over here, uh, and the teacher's like, just just leave her in for God's sake, like be a fucking human. Um, and then, but then he says, like, hurry up and get well. Make sure you tell her, hurry up. Yeah. Yeah, please, oh, yeah. please pressure this this child with bone cancer to recover faster. Yeah, that, <laughs> that'll make the difference. the The fall festival needs it. Anyway, they uh, they return to Karen's sickbed later on, and uh, 
Karen's lost a leg. I, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's immediate. She goes right back to give yeah. her the news, like, okay, you can dance at the festival. Oh, good. No, not dancing. My they yeah. No, wait, her um, mom. Her mom tells her that they cut off. Right, oh, yes. Her right. mom intercepts yeah. her on the way to the hospital. That okay, is okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Dawn is going and Dawn's mom intercepts. They have this very evocative music that starts to play um, at that moment to really garner our sympathy. Yeah. And then Karen is, of course, after having her leg cut off, um, again, upsettingly bubbly, and he does some black humor about it. Involving like how her cat used to attack her feet, right? Because um, I guess Donna's Donna's taking care of of Karen's cat, and um, but now that can't happen because she's missing a leg, or it won't happen as much. <laughs> and that's yeah. So there's some black humor there, and then uh, Karen proceeds to talk about her dream. Does anyone want to speak to the dream, or or should I do it? She saw Jesus, and Jesus told her that there was something better. Uh, for her so she's okay if she dies now because there's something better and and she doesn't just dream about jesus telling her this to her it's like jesus is healing a bunch of people and then there's a bunch of other people that he's not healing and he's like no don't worry i got this i got this you're gonna love it <laughs> yeah so, well, so right because oh yeah because that uh, that helps her understand why he's not healing her right and the, and then oh. then he tells all those people that there's something better for them which is death i guess and then she death. <laughs> this is the same for me so they're just like what nihilists or <laughs> she, well yeah she has she dreams about Rorschach from watchmen jesus and he says <laughs> no nine <laughs> this is a laugh to keep from crying uh situation yeah like it's fucking horrible you guys it's horrible yeah it's it's really bad well and and because they're such short episodes they just kind of uh it's it's very rapid pace because they have to move from tug on the heartstrings to the next tug on the heartstrings like it's just straight up like i'm gonna dance my leg's gone i dreamed about people being healed but not me and just bang 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 it's all then she loses her cat she loses the yeah. sick girl's for, cat. Yeah. Don, Donna loses Karen's cat, Ferguson, who, mm-hmm. fun fact, will subsequently become the Barkley family cat in perpetuity <laughs> in the series. <laughs> so, as a gr- constant, that is, that is so weird to grim me. reminder. Yeah. Well, that's what she says at the end. She's like, I'm just afraid that I'm going to forget her. And then the cat mm-hmm. comes back and like, she could never forget her because now she has a cat. Yeah, now there's a totem. As a totem. Yeah, yeah. It's just Karen in, in cat form. <laughs> yeah. Well, K- Karen's last Horcrux. Um. <laughs> That's the next episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> the magic ritual is performed. Okay. Uh, yes. So moving this episode along, Karen is released from hospital. She attends the fall festival. Obviously, she's unable to perform her dance. So instead, she recites uh, an arcane hymn from the early 20th century titled No Night There. Um, and I guess, like, obviously being very much about 
the redemptive power of Christ in the overcoming of death through rebirth in heaven. Um, you know, that being like, there is no, no death and no night and no unpleasantness in the afterlife for those who are saved. Uh, this is the part of the episode where Wit says, yeah, where Wit is like very, before this, Wit is very clear, like, make sure, it's very clear though to say like, she's a Christian and Christians go to heaven. So just, just right. need to remind you, all children with cancer who are not Christians go to hell. I, I really want to tell you that. Okay, back back to Karen. <laughs> back to Karen to deal with Who's, the who is not thing. going to hell, so you don't need to feel bad because she's not going to hell. Just the just one billion, just billions of other people on this planet. Right. Yeah, just that. And you don't have to feel bad about that at all. <laughs> no, you don't. Don't think about that. <laughs> not only you don't have to, but don't. You cannot feel bad. Don't do it. It's not allowed yeah. anymore. <laughs> you have to feel good about your dead child. <sighs> yeah. um, anyway, um, so then after that, you know, um, Karen it bestows Ferguson. Karen goes back in the hospital. Donna visits her. Uh, Karen makes her last wish that Ferguson remain with Donna um, after she passes. So... You know, she receives the last, basically Donna receives the childhood version of the last will and testament of Karen. Um, yeah. Did any of you ever do this with your friends? Like, like give each other like your wills when you, I, yeah. I have a very clear memory of doing this when I was nine and we've been like, if I die, you're going to get this and you're going to get that. Like <laughs> as a group. We would, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I remember Wrote that. Hmm. I think I just remember having like zany requests of how I want to be buried, like shoot my ashes out of a cannon or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I always used to think really methodically about my money, like even before I had any money. And then I started like a whole, you know, <laughs> I started the big babysitting business when I was in the fifth grade and I just haven't stopped. <laughs> but <laughs> I'd be like, okay, here are my assets. <laughs> you know, here are my potential assets. <laughs> Um, like ten percent of yeah, ten percent of the estate is to be paid to the Shriners <laughs> amputee ward. Mostly, yeah, mostly it was actually my Adventures and Odyssey tapes. I'm like, who would they go to? I loved them so much. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that, to be fair, there's a thing children do even when they're not imminently facing their mortality. So yeah, that's true. But it was like so. I know when she just goes goodbye, Donna, and she goes goodbye, Karen. It's like, oh, and, so now she's dead, just like yeah, that. Yeah, and then yeah, fade to fade away to music, and then everyone's talking about how sad it is she died. Like right. that was. Did, I don't think she didn't die imminently, we, but time yeah, passed. we did time skip to like after the funeral. I think yes. they're like talking about how how beautiful the funeral was. Right, yeah. and then uh, Wit says he says I felt sad for our loss, but hopeful too. She was right. We'll see her again. She's gone from us, but she's with him. That's what she says. Yeah. As, uh, for Christians, for Christians, they won't. For Christians who go to heaven, they will see her again. Just one more reminder: all other children with cancer who die go to hell. Just right. One more. One but more time. You gotta. Don't be sad um, because we'll see her again. You know that whole thing about pushing away grief. Yeah. 
It doesn't really enforce the party atmosphere we're trying to cultivate. <laughs> the party atmosphere. <laughs> the celebratory atmosphere we're trying to cultivate. That's a, that's a you know, if you're looking at this episode in the overview, Karen's really got really got it going on. She is like bringing the vibes <laughs> to the party. Everybody else is a downer. Everyone else is a downer compared to Karen. It's true. They're um, just making it harder for her. This poor girl. <laughs> She's trying to, to cultivate all the emotional work for everyone. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, and I think at this uh, during this part, like uh, Donna straight up asks Wit, like, uh, "Why did God let Karen die?" And uh, Wit responds yeah. with, "Like, uh, what is the verse? Like Re- Revelations twenty-one something of like, you know, he shall wipe away every tear. There will be no more death." or pain you know that 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 thing um which isn't an answer uh <laughs> in, the, in the new jerusalem yeah but it's interesting too because karen they didn't let karen like ha- be in pain you know except for one moment so then it, you know the impact of that kind of goes away because they didn't portray it truthfully yeah yeah yes yeah 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 so i guess we should yeah let's just move on now into the aggregate aggregate theme broad themes i guess um because i think we got a couple of things i think your point about suffering elena something you mentioned when we were talking about this offline there's there's a lot of talk about hospitals and the ill right yeah like even like right from the beginning i was i was saying that donna is like ooh, a hospital i don't want to go in there you know like oh people are crazy in there or like you know and then even you know, we get down to the part where the, what's her name, Mrs. Murray goes, there's a cake, you know, get, get me a cake with a file in it. I just want to break yeah. out of here. <laughs> Karen, Karen promises she's going to come back. Yeah. Which I didn't know that Paul McCluster was a Foucauldian, you know, that he, he was, he really wants to, he really considers it like bio, biopower and biopolitics and, you know, right. the, the yeah, need to promulgate it- systems on the body. Yeah, I'm like, is it is it uh, about the institution of the hospital? Like, what is the antipathy towards being in the hospital, you know? I think from, like, the Adventures in Odyssey writer's perspective, they're trying to do, like, a how-do-you-do-fellow-kids sort of thing, where they're like, kids don't like hospitals, right? Right? Yeah, we have to reflect that in the, we need to have the kids talk about how much they hate the hospital. Um but they also make the kids in this episode really discompassionate. Like, I don't know kids, mm-hmm. you know, if something bad is happening, the kids that I know are not like, well, fuck them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, fuck what they think or what they feel. I'm cutting you from the play. <laughs> well, that's right. the You're out. Yeah, it's very, like, the, their understanding out. of how children relate to difficult things like people being terminally ill in a hospital is like it's very one-dimensional it's totally flat yeah there's no uh there's no room for complexity possibly because these the authors live in flat lives (laughs) yeah but also it's like it's quite the view that they take of children throughout the whole thing which is children are not complex and children are not like the most sentient beings you know they need to be told what to do and how to feel which is not true in my opinion in my yeah experience. we can all agree children without 
the salvation of Jesus Christ, are a gross animal that is only concerned with what it eats and where it passes its feces until they receive the, the hardware upgrade. must go on. Yeah, from God. So, you know, uh, it, it tracks. But no, I think, I mean, I, Mitch is probably correct. They're, they're hearkening back to, to, to comedic tropes. Uh, they're being vaudevillian, as they're at prompt known to do. I'm going to say that they are, in fact, Foucauldian theorists, and <laughs> and, and, that, and that yeah, and that this like so for those who don't know who Michel Foucault is, and that's fine. But Foucault really posited this idea that like one of the ways that power s- structures emerge in society was in other people's efforts to like impose their will on other people's bodies, either in the form of of labor or you know in the case or for sex or whatever it is right and that one of the obvious institutions that was shaped by this desire to better understand and better act upon the human body was the institution of medicine and and and, and to another and to an even greater extent psychiatry which was extremely problematic in Foucault's time and of course Foucault being being a gay man and so on you know experienced a lot of this firsthand and you you can wrestle a lot with what Foucault is saying and what he's he's believing but I think you know uh, Foucault's late in life affinity for the Iranian revolution is I think extremely demonstrative of what Foucault was getting at <laughs> right um, and, that, and that deep when you when you peel back the layers of Foucault like he's making some very salient criticisms of people like well, well what does he want us to do with this and I think Foucault says revert to the Middle Ages. <laughs> I don't I, I, I don't think that I, I there's a possibility that that's what he's saying. Um you know, and that like there's the revert revert all this, all this yeah, knowledge reject, yeah. and all this. Yeah. Yeah, to some extent he says reject modernity, embrace tradition. <laughs> yeah. Which is of course another form of biopolitic, but <laughs> we won't <laughs> body politic like biopolitics, yes. These these uh, writers are more progressive than they think. Well, no, but it's not necessarily progressive, right? And this thing about like the Foucauldian, the Foucauldian analytic technology is not politically gendering, right? Because it just says yeah. where is power and how is it flowing. Yeah, He's yeah, describing yeah. the machine, and you can use that to better to construct or deconstruct a better machine for any purpose, right? And I think, and the Foucauldian critique is actually very well integrated into the libertarian political thought project because, you know, like here, because they can, they can harness the Foucauldian critique in a much more rudimentary sense to be like, see, we have to deconstruct like public medicine. All these things are just ways to act on people's bodies and they'll inevitably be used to be coercive and destructive, you know, and that, and I think, and I think that is, I, again, I don't think anyone was thinking about Foucault when they wrote this, but right. <laughs> like, this is all simmering under there in the American political discourse and the intersection with postmodernism in the 1980s. And that also that postmodernism in the 20th century serves as a function, as an antithesis to Marxist analysis, right? I mean, like Leotard talks about, Leotard, when he's talking about the postmodern condition, he's starting at like the specter of Marxist haunting Europe, Right. Postmodernism is much about the historical telos of Marxism, much more so than than it is about like uh, biblical hermeneutics, which is I think what a lot of people like to talk about. <laughs> the implicate was what Christians want to talk about when they talk about postmodernism. How they think? Well, yeah. they they they're denouncing biblical hermeneutics. How dare they? I'm just processing what you're saying. <laughs> that one's I been bottled up inside me for a very. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's interesting. Do you feel better? <laughs> I I think it's always um like really interesting and important to look at the like social themes that are underlying what is happening. Like, you know, this this moment in time, 1988, why are people writing this episode? Uh, right now for the the public, you know, what is the evangelical church trying to say um, in response to what's happening in the world right now? You know, and the postmodernist Foucault outlook is, <laughs> I mean, it's there, it's happening. <laughs> they don't know it. <laughs> They're not aware. <laughs> well, and and like hospitals are like a very fraught terrain where you do uh, run right into these questions of like bodily agency and how much our institutions can become coercive in ways that we haven't necessarily thought about and maybe should be thinking about. I remember um, a particularly poignant moment. Um, my grandfather, when I was a uh, um, young, uh, fought cancer for quite a few years. And, um, unlike how they, uh, portray it in this episode, of course, where it's all over very quickly and neat and tidy, it was a messy, incredibly difficult time, um, both for him and for his family. It was really hard on my mom. Um, you know, he had periods when he was getting better and then he would get worse again. Um, and my grandfather was a pharmacist. So he took like an interest in like part of how he coped with the treatment was that he wanted to understand it and, you know, know inside and out what the drugs were, how they were supposed to work, what they would be doing to his body. And there was a moment when I was, um, in his hospital room um, when he was like bedridden and like in a really bad way. And um, the nurse came in to give him his meds and um, they actually had a fight because he didn't, he didn't want them. And um, the nurse didn't really understand and he was too weak. To... So, so my, my grandfather was, like had a, um, an informed perspective on, on, on what he wanted and, you know, was having a really difficult time. And uh, the nurse didn't really understand the complexity of his relationship to uh, the meds and basically just kind of fought with him to make him take them. And it was, it was really, really difficult to watch. Um, right. Because when you're thinking about like, you know, power structure and how, the, the nurse in the room is the person who has all the power and they have the meds and they have the knowledge about it. But then when you start to take back this knowledge for yourself of like what's happening with your body and how your body like actually interacts with, then you have a sense of power for yourself. But like, is it, is it true? You know, are you mm -hmm. the person who still gets to act out your choices on your body? Yeah. And, and like, I don't, I don't blame the nurse in that situation or anything, you know, um, it's just one of those, uh, really tough, really tough moments where, you know, these sorts of 
ideas and the decisions behind them come to a head in a way that is incredibly difficult to navigate and um you know the the sort of thing that like it's hard to hold space for and this episode just completely flattens out of the experience of having a loved one dying of cancer like just completely yeah. obliterates that um which is part of what made this episode so enraging to me yeah well, well when you don't see like the people you're seeing who are closest to her experience are still removed from the experience you know like you're seeing Karen who's kind of dissociated from it because she's not feeling pain except for in one tiny moment and she's not feeling emotional pain either. Um, and then you have like these other people who are really like, you know, positivists around her being like, it's going to be fine. Like you're good. And like, don't make us feel bad. It really diminishes the reality of the situation. Yeah, and I think in the in the unwritten text between the lines that I don't think the author is intended is that and and you will you see this uh, a lot is that like what I think is actually happening with Karen's like aggressively chipper attitude is that she's reflecting back to the people around her what she's perceiving them to want from her, which is to like yeah. manage their own emotional pain instead of coping with her own death you know right. yeah and i think that's something re that's really unfair that people do often which is at, they ask the person the sick person or the person who's struggling to curb their pain you know rather than holding space for the person who's actually going through this it's yeah like, and i think that that's something that like the m message of this episode uh also imposes the whole like no don't don't worry it'll be fine there's heaven there's heaven and you're going there so don't be sad or yeah. you can be sad but you don't need to be too sad which i think is a like r regardless of uh whatever your beliefs in the afterlife might be i think that framing it in that way uh sabotages and interferes with people's ability to like actually hold that pain and grieve because it, it hurts. It's bad, you know? Yeah. And the point of grief, like, as I understand it in the body is that when you allow yourself to grieve, things process, but when you don't, then you actually are holding on to it forever. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, in the end to flash forward, maybe this is not what they consciously mean, but she's like, will I forget Karen? You know, well, you're never going to forget her if you never grieve her because you're always going to be in that moment of her dying. You know, she really matters to you. I don't know. If that yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. No, no, it does. I, I was I was thinking about sometimes, um, you, you know, sometimes when uh people have lost a loved one, loved one and it was, was really traumatic and they frame it in this, uh, you know, they're in heaven now, it's okay. Um, you, you can sometimes see people like not moving beyond it and they will like build a shrine to the person with like angels and stuff to be constantly reminding themselves of mm -hmm. how, you know, they're dead, but they're in heaven, they're dead, but they're in heaven, they're in heaven, it's okay. But they're clearly like clinging on, they are clinging on to that death because yeah. they're not letting themselves feel the pain of it. And by doing that, they're 
drawing out the pain and extending it indefinitely. Yeah. So opposite effect of what they had hoped for. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was, I remember I was in the first grade and I went to a like K to 12 Christian school. Um, but there was a girl who was in kindergarten who had cancer and she had cancer for a year. Uh, I think she was in hospital for like a year. And when, like in our class, we talked about it a lot and we made her this quilt, you know, we all made these like squares for her and like put this quilt together. And I remember like her mom coming in to talk to us about it. And just feel like the, I remember the feelings I had being much more complicated than what is what people are allowed to feel in this episode. Um, you know, because you feel confused and you feel, but it what you know, it's not as, um, you know, there's some sense of like angry, like injustice that you feel, or like I felt of like, you know, why is this happening? She's just a kid like me, you know. And then, like, fear, you know, could this happen to me? Um, And stuff like that. But I think, it I don't know, the episode does, like, a real disservice to the experience of people who go, you know, have loved ones who have cancer or, you know, kids who have cancer or anybody who has cancer in uh, making them so 2D in what they are allowed to feel. It's not complex enough for me. Yeah, I, I really, I really hear that. I, I think that, I think that part of the reason for that, I mean, there's, there's, there's a multitude, right? Like, um, I, I won't reiterate just dunking on the authors being bad, boring people, but also <laughs> I think that like the writing of this episode doesn't hold any of those complexities because it's, it has kind of a singular focus. Like this episode masquerades as being about navigating the difficulties of death for children but that's not what it's about because in the the exoplot uh at the beginning and the end they don't even bother with one like chris doesn't have a cute little thing where she's mowing the lawn or anything what she does is she reads a bible verse and she says make sure your parents are in the room i think that's what this episode really is is this is like the good cop uh, um uh to the bad cop like the good cop, bad cop, this is the good cop version of turn or burn for the parents. It's saying to the parents, like, hey, make sure your kid is going to heaven because terrible things could happen to them. Mm. Um, I think that's sick. That's such a good point because I think that there's a lot in this episode that's geared towards adults rather yes. than kids. Yeah. You know, even though, yeah. like the way that they portray the kids as these like angry teenagers or angry like pre-adolescents it's like that's how that's an adult view of kids you know or like you know telling the kids what to feel at the end um you know you don't have to be sad you know she's with god like that's it's very preachy if you're a kid you know mm-hmm. yeah, and it's not and they're saying you don't have to feel sad but in fact you maybe cannot feel sad right and and this is where like this is where I think like you talk about that two dimensionality, and this is where like the metaphysics comes in, right? In the sense that this is fundamentally like a mind body dualism <laughs> problem. Yeah, like this is this is fun because fundamentally they they have a belief, they have a belief there is a soul and a body, 
Maybe right. this contradicts what I was saying earlier about the Foucault. This complicates what I was saying earlier about the Foucaultian <laughs> stuff. But but like there, there's a thing they cannot. Now, here's the thing: evangelical Christianity and its associated, and I mean in this case, really focus on the family because it is a is an organization started by a psychiatrist that fundamentally is positing a mode of social organization and a modality of managing social and mental health problems. That's actually what Focus on the Family's core purpose is. That's why it exists. It, right? it exists to put forward policy and healthcare solutions to social and psychological ills. That's why they exist. So, And they posit a, a view of human nature that does not accommodate the theory of trauma. Yeah. In many ways, because it predates our current understanding of trauma in the sense it's completely locked in the personal vision of Dr. Dobson, right? And his, wow. you know, the fact that he was not part of the psychiatric discourse when he was formulating his ideas about how we should all help people and families. Yeah. It didn't exist as it does now, but also just because they don't, they also just don't believe in that because again, to have, you talked about trauma being caught in the body. It's a processing thing, right? We are, our, our, thought, yeah. our thoughts are part of our body and our body's part of our thoughts. And when people hear that, sometimes they go to crazy places and that's, you get like the secret. Well, I can change reality with my thoughts. That's not <laughs> true, but you know, you the, what you think does impact your body and what's going on in your body impacts your thoughts. hundred percent. That's a 100% true thing. Right. But the view that magical they about it. in the 80s is that head is separated from body. Like yeah, mind your mind. Yeah. You, there's a little man inside you in the, your brain pulling the levers. Mm. And, and when your body dies, that little man hops in an airplane and goes up to God or whatever. Right. There's your right. soul and your soul leaves your body. So maybe that's yeah. why they portray Karen to be so dissociated from her experience. I, I think you're right. And I think it's also like... Uh, for what this episode is teaching children, like imagine the horrible harm of like placing a burden on kids. Like if you if you are a terminally ill child and you have this example of like, no, you don't need to show your suffering. You need to be like chipper and cheerful and cheering everyone on and letting them know how good it is and how it's fine that you're dying and like not being able to one, not being able to hold space to grieve your own oncoming death but to this toxic example of uh of this little girl whose mind and speech and her socialization isn't impacted by her sickness her her right. mind is independent from the harm done to her body and that that's not how it plays out when people are sick they're not at their best and it's hard and it's hard to think and it's hard to relate and it's hard to control your emotions and um and it's hard for everyone to hold space for that but you need to acknowledge that it's real uh to even be able to do it and the completely fake beautiful suffering that's portrayed in this episode mm. is it's not just a lie it's a harmful lie because it creates an imposition to try to replicate it and that's impossible that's a really interesting like point bringing up the beautiful suffering thing. You know, it's very it's like straight out of the romantic era. <laughs> you know, straight out of it, the It's right out of the Victorian era. Victorian era. Yeah. Out of. And this notion yeah, yeah. of women, you know, women and their no like and particularly women, right, being beautiful 
They are they're their most uh, a Victorian woman is most beautiful in suffering. Right. Yeah. When she is shouldering the tremendous burden of of being perpetually pregnant and and doing all of the washing, which is a, a torturous task in the Victorian times, you know, and and enduring and bearing all of this for England is what makes her the greatest. Right. Right. She's useful. She's great. She is truly great because she suffers truly horribly. And they do that with her. You know, they do that with Karen in this episode. And, and they do it with a child because yeah. a yeah. girl, a female child is still female. Right. Yeah. It's more impactful than it would be if it would be a boy. Do you think would, on the minds be, of the It would be more tragic. More it's more tragic. tragic if it's a male child. Because the, that male child has more in it than suffering. And to suffer noble and to not and to suffer noble as a male child is a waste in their eyes. I, I don't I don't think that the Adventures in, Ida, in Odyssey uh, writers would really understand how to portray that because this is adding another this they is adding even... another tick to our uh, women who die right. to facilitate because other people's learning. Um, which only one son do. dies. Only one oh, son dies okay. in all that Adventures does. in Odyssey. Right. Really? Only one, yeah. one, one, yeah. And it is with son. Right. Who oh, dies, he dies in, the in Vietnam. Who dies in yeah. Vietnam. Right. That's right. when the son dies. That's when the male child dies. Hero. Yes. Um, realistically, uh, almost undeniably a war criminal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because he was also, he was also like a fucking, like, he was a translator. Like yeah, he spoke he Vietnamese, like so he was also yeah no well that's Jason the other son who's with the CIA. Oh. This get, okay. it gets wild, y'all. <laughs> you have no idea. This is very very uh, tame but, but, compared but, like, to what's going is, to happen. That is adventures in that is adventures in Odyssey. It's like women die and are beautiful as they suffer, and men are badass hackers and yeah. CIA heroes and uh, yeah yeah. It, it's the it's so transparent. <laughs> yeah, so this is really cool because like in the Karen story, all of the things are there. And also I think it's really important to note that it's Donna. Like it's a, it's a, it's like a woman dying that that's womanly space. Right. It's a, yeah, it's, a right. it's a female friend. Right. Right. That, that right. remembers her. And I mean, I think it's broader points about gender mixing and stuff, but yeah. Well, and but, but, and also, yeah, yeah. But wit is always there to dictate what everyone is supposed to think about it. And feel about it. Yes. Yeah. 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 But but because the emphasis is on strength and the wit and the mind over the body, um, and that being that being an attribute of salvation, then it then it isn't sinful to be in dis out of that, right? So what it says then is that Christians are with salvation are necessarily strong and therefore cannot be victimized. Right. No Christian can be victimized. And what does that do to people who think they're Christians who become victimized? As almost everyone does. Yeah. Well, it, it's gaslighting. <laughs> it's what it, it is. It, tell, it tells them they're satanic for being a victim. Yeah. And this is foundational to the entire ensuing culture of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that is endemic to churches. Because it, because when people are like, wait, was I victimized? No, that's not possible because I'm saved and therefore cannot be victimized. This is where it stems from. This like idea of what strength is, 
and the separation of the mind from the body. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in my own personal experience, it's been through like learning how to reconcile the mind with the body, like through like psychosomatic work and, you know, breath work and like all this stuff of being like, wow, like I have a lot of grief about (laughs) growing up in church, you know, that I have been able to move past the victim mentality because I think it's something that's kind of inherent also in the faith is like you have you are not enough as you are like you are you are a victim you have to be saved you know in order to be okay but then you can't be anymore but then you can't be anymore because you're good now you're good and you have no problems and any problems you have are your deficiency and not a problem with the faith exactly yeah it's your deficiency and and then the only so you're victimized and you're feeling bad about that well what do you need to do now clearly you need to submit more to your abuser because Mm -hmm. further submission will make you less vulnerable. Less vulnerable as an umbrella, but but specifically less vulnerable to the community that is the church. You know? No, it makes you much more vulnerable to the community of the church. <laughs> they no, want I mean, you to be more vulnerable. Bro, I, th- I think we're talking about different kinds of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, like, you are, like, the more that you submit yourself to your abuser, like, I'm thinking of, like, a specific person. Like, let's say, like, you are in a marriage that is abusive. You are extremely vulnerable to that person, but even though this like group of people is supposed to be protecting you and looking out for you, you are less vulnerable to them, like to being in contact with them, the more that you submit to this person. That's the circumstance I'm thinking of in my brain. The abuse is less vulnerable to interference. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) But I think like that's a way, that's a way kind of through to the other side of things is like, you know, if Karen, if in this episode, Karen went wild with grief, you know, that would be, that's like, you know, a way of saying like, I'm free, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend, here's another cancer story since we get to talk about this, this episode, but I had a friend who, passed away when she was 22 and her name was Gail. And she was just this, like, she was like one of the most like fierce, incredible people uh, that I knew. And she was, she wanted to do all these like incredible things, like traveled to Paris and when she was 17 and like had enrolled in university um, to do like a writing program. And you know, and she had struggled with bone cancer, like, since she was 12. So it goes back to this whole thing that, like, it's a longer struggle than they put it in this episode. It's ugly. And then all of a sudden, you know, it came back when she was 22 and she passed away from it. And, but I felt so much like, you know, what was really profound about experiencing her, like, through this was that she never was, like, trying to get out of her body, Like, she never was trying to, like, transcend her experience. She was like, this is what I'm living with. You know, this is my reality. And, like, she had no hair for a long time. And and there there were things that were really hard. And, you know, people would be like, wow, you're so brave. You know, you're so brave. And she's like, I'm not fucking brave. I'm fucking scared. You know, I don't want to die. I don't want to lose my hair. You know, and, but, but I think people, like, from the outside think, 
that they could never do that, you know? But until you're there, you don't know. That you just have to do it. So I, I think that's another interesting topic, though, is when the, when outside people go, you know, they've got this. Like, they're so brave. Like, wow. And they sort of idolize, like, put them on this pedestal. Like, the sick, in a way. Sometimes. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. They're... Um... Well, it's it's like we were, we were talking about before. It creates this social imposition on people who are suffering to stop suffering and show strength so that other people don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Well, a person dying in front of you screams, and you too will die. <laughs> it's yeah. very hard to ignore your mortality when someone is dying in front of you. Yeah. That's very hard. It's very easy to ignore your mortality at a grave. You can walk away from it. But someone dying in front of you is a very stark reminder of your mortality. Mm. And so it's important to manage that experience to make sure we're receiving, again, the, the positive, constructive messaging and that puts forward the celebratory <laughs> atmosphere we as a community of faith are trying to convey to people. Don't <laughs> that those who are truly life. saved... <laughs> That's really important. <laughs> because a dying person is dangerous. They're very well, dangerous. And, it, and, it, and it's such a seductive message in this episode because the episode posits like, oh, you know, you, you could be suffering here and sad. Just choose not to be. Um, and I think they really give away the game at the end where when like Donna is asking Wit, like, why did God let Karen die? And he just gives her a pat Bible verse answer. And she says, I want to believe it. Really, I do. Which is exactly the like, yeah, sure. I, I'd love to have an easy answer that involves just wiping away all of the difficulty here. That would be nice. Too bad it, it doesn't work that way. You know? Yeah. Do you think that in saying that line, do you, do you think it was an attempt to be relatable or like an intent like kind of like you know when you go in you tell the person what they are already thinking and then you like do a, a bait and switch that's what I'm thinking of <laughs> you know where you're like oh I know what you're thinking now Paul McCusker is saying to the audience I know what you're thinking right now and but he was a battle verse. Um, I think that the I want to believe, I mean, for myself, while I was exiting evangelical circles and like for a, a while, like struggling to stay in it, even though everything in me was screaming, like, no, this is sick, get out. Um, like my own personal internal mantra was almost like, I want to believe. And I think that is how they get people to stick in it is like, okay, this doesn't seem to be working out, but the promise of how it's supposed to work when it does seems so good. Yeah. So I'm just going to pretend and act like I believe and act like it's working uh, and hope that that will make it happen. You know, it's like but fake it till you make it with your belief system. And they're asking <laughs> people to do that because it quashes visible dissent within the church. If everyone is acting like it's working for them, then you can't feel like you have someone else to reach out to, to talk about how it's not working. Right. Yeah. 
But that that beautifully describes it because one of the things we talked about offline is this this show problems of evils itself so hard. Oh right? yeah. And the problem of evil is when you say, "How can God be all powerful and all good at the same time?" Because clearly, bad things happen. So either God's not all powerful or God's not infinitely good. Um, and the and the answer they provide is the one you described, which is ultimately, well, but if it's real, it's so good, I shouldn't give it up. Which is Pascal's wager. And Pascal's wager is that, like, well, you sure you could not believe in God, but if he's wrong, you go to hell. Or you could believe in God, go to church, be inconvenienced on Sundays, and receive eternal life. Obviously, just do the math, friend. <laughs> and, and and Pascal, in defense of his wager, once I believe I, I read this somewhere, I don't know where in his oeuvre it's located, but uh, but Pascal says, you know, someone questions him on this, and he says. Well, you know, like tr you're, you say you're being reasonable. You're not really being reasonable. And Pascal says, well, you know, the, the heart knows the reason. Reason doesn't know. And that's ostensibly what wit says, right? <laughs> there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. It's ineffable. <laughs> yeah. Well, he I, I mean, like a strong argument. He just <laughs> says statements. <laughs> There's no argumentation in it. And that's ver ver rhetorically very smart. <laughs> never yeah, have an yeah, argument yeah. when you can make a statement. <laughs> yeah. Ne never, never give handles for doubt to interact with. Mm. Just act as if doubt is impossible and socially ostracize people and make them doubt themselves for doubting. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we we've talked before in different episodes about like how wit is the God figure in this whole thing and you know having him come in at the end and be like oh what does he say again he says you know she's gone from us but she's with him you know being the the method of comfort is like sweet you know i feel like it's when people go to church and then the pastor is like speaking as god's mouthpiece you know, and people feel comforted by that because it's sort of like, that's the authority figure. When in reality, it's like, who is this fucking guy? Like, who is this guy? And what authority does he have to comfort you, Donna? <laughs> you know? This fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think it's because of that likeness to like God and all the ideas that they have around who God is that it's like it's so easy to just take the take the what he's saying to them as truth. I mean that 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 pejorative statement of ineffability only functions under the auspices of naive paternalism. Right. And naive paternalism being like, 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 oh, we're all okay. We're all just innocent kids and dad's taking care of us. Right. right, right. We're all innocent kids and wit's taking care of us. So, yeah. so you can be like, you can, the pat on the head answer is perfectly acceptable if you exist in naive paternalism as your, as a social organizing framework. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that you, you've got something there about how like, um, paternalistic, uh, focus on the family's perspective on faith is um, because, you know, in the uh, not perfect, but much better uh, tradition I was initially raised in, 
like uh, our our priest would frequently talk about how like it is okay to not have answers and it is okay to be su suffering and it is okay to be angry at God because of things that happen, which is it in itself, you know, that's another attempt at a theodicy for the problem of evil of just like, you know, uh, okay, be mad about it, but still not giving an answer. But I still, I still like that better because it at least allows an emotional relationship with what's happening in your life compared to what happens in uh, this episode. And I think in focus on the family's theology, I don't think that they, they don't, they wouldn't, they would consider that um, unacceptable to be mad at God because how dare you be ungrateful for everything daddy has done for you, you know? Well, and this thing, so going back to like Dr. James Dobson, who like personally, you know, was again, evangelical Christian, and eugenicist, right? um, but he kind of believed that a correct a correct order in society produced good people. So I, when I was on here last, I was talking about how like all political systems need to posit a sense of what a person is so they can govern it, right? You, you need to know what a person is if you're going to have a society. Well, you kind of need that. So you really need a sense of what a person is if you're going to tell people how to live a good life, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so all religions also strive to define what a person is, and you know because they're also heads up making governments <laughs> a system to govern <laughs> their parishioners right <laughs> but i guess this is the thing like so a correct social order which is fundamentally paternalistic with the father at the head of the household the father submitting to the church and the political leadership and the, mm -hmm. you know it's all nightmare will produce good people who know their place and know how to function and so what dr dobson saw was when he saw he saw systems of authority and reporting just breaking down he believed people were suffering because they were outside of their role Right. Divorces are happening at a record rate and women are very depressed. The dysfunction in the social people dislocated from their place in the proper heterosexual Christian marriage is causing them immeasurable psychic pain. And if we can push them all back, we will be well and we will be happy and it'll be like it was fucking before. But it was never good. He was just hearing about it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and so his causality, the way he structured his solution was wrong. Yeah, he he has the causality backwards, as they so often do. You know, they they see the consequences, and they take them to be the cause. And that's why it's so important that Karen is suffering nobly. Does anyone have anything else? Uh, I was going to look at the discussion questions. Uh, yeah. that the Adventures in Odyssey website gives us, but like that, they're they're pretty flat. Like we we've gone straight after exactly what they wanted out of this episode. So they're like, how could Karen be so peaceful about her illness? Well, we've been talking Jesus. about that. <laughs> well, yeah. because the writers wrote her that way. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, here's something uh, we can get into about. So I'm thinking about the fact that they're constantly saying you know, hurry up and get out of there, like hurry up and, mm. and get back to and get back, get well, get well. And it's making me think about how heavily influenced this worldview is by like capitalist tendencies and like needing uh, to be efficient. Um, and, you know, the, you know, <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you're if you're sick and if you're then you're not useful in society. 
And, you know, it also points back to this whole thing about like being people who are in the hospital are crazy or people who are in the hospital, are, like alienating them. It's an, it's an alienating experience uh, in this episode for Karen to be in the hospital and people treat her like people really alienate her, like the boy trying trying to get back to his show business. Um, I don't know if any of that is striking chord, but it's just percolating in my head. It it absolutely is. I think that, yeah, you've really caught something there because this like insistence on like get better for all of our sakes um, is like in the capitalist mode of production, when you are sick, you are taking resources and not being productive. And um, like just getting into some of like my own, what's going on in my own life, especially since, and this is even harder right now when, uh, you know, our, our government has completely sabotaged and destroyed our healthcare system by uh, deliberately mismanaging COVID. Um, so my parents have both been having a lot of difficulty getting like the medical treatment that they really deserve and need because of the structures of how medical triage happens in like our society. Um, the, my dad struggles with a lot of chronic pain conditions caused by like workplace accidents. And the mo he retired very recently. And the moment he retired, he was immediately triaged downwards for care because it's like, oh, well, this isn't interfering with you being productive and doing a job anymore. So, you know, get lost. You're just a retiree now. We'll we'll get to you eventually. And uh, my mother was struggling with uh, some extremely uh, debilitating uh, knee pain and was having a lot of trouble with the doctor who like a year ago said, you know what, it's just going to go away. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And of course, it, it did not go away and she could not get help with it until finally she came in and said, um, you know, this is interfering with my ability to work. And she had said the magic words and suddenly, bing, a key turned in the lock and she started getting help. It was like, oh, 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 you can't, you can't work. You say, well, okay, we'll, we'll get you a proper MRI that we didn't want to do because it was too expensive. But if you're saying it's having... Uh, an impact on your work like wow um yeah <laughs> that also makes me think about even just the circumstance of setting karen in the room with mrs what's her name murray mrs murray this old woman mm -hmm. you know it's like they're grouping these people who are sick who are not contributing to society in the room together and sort of writing off their experience um yeah. Hospitals are where you go to die. That should be where you go to die. Yeah. Because you're broken. Yeah. You're out of your you're out of your you're out of your slot in society and you're suffering. So we either find a way to put you back in or we will retire you. Right. And that's probably why she dies so quickly too. You know, in a sense. <laughs> Rights are off the books of uh our society pretty quickly. She didn't won't cost too much sucks man yeah, but again it's this whole thing of like how what is a person how, how do we design a, how do we think of and conceive of a person and the problem is and it's re, you're a real smart fucking guy when you're being like aha here's what a person is a person is a a person is a, a man and a woman and the man is strong and does things and the woman is fertile and cares for things and together they make a good society and if we just let them do that things will be great um, right. but there's a whole bunch of things that are 
But the thing is, it's not just like some people get sick. Some people die. Everybody gets sick. Everyone's disabled at some yeah. point in their life. You know, yeah. if only as a very small child and, and towards their death. You know, like we all are. We we have, yeah, like we are all going we are to all hurtling towards mortality <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and and we're not yeah so we're not so like we have our, our society is structured by people who have written beautiful descriptions of what they think people are and if it were true what they were saying if their description of humanity of human existence was correct we would all function very well in this system because the system was exactly built for that that entity but we're trying to describe or not that entity that exists like we're trying to put names on things that already has an essence you know we are pretty subpar at doing that as we have seen with certain constitutions among other things <laughs> well the, 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 the i mean the strive to re i mean yeah and again like philosophically they strive to reduce things to make them palpable so they can be understood yeah. and managed which is good. You want to do that, but if you, they, but if you reduce too much, that you reduce and you get a workable model and you start using that, and then you start, and then reality starts contraindicating your model. The current practice is to discount the counterindicating experience. Right? It's not to reconfigure the model. Yeah, yeah. Reality is defying my model. Clearly, reality is wrong. Is very much a good description of our present historical moment. Uh, and that's and that's the and that's the church and that's the government and that's you know and and that, that's everything from yeah from our families from like families to churches to workplaces yeah like mm -hmm. they all do that but again i think this is like another reason why it's such a good argument for people to work toward like if you want to be in resistance to this kind of a, a setup like work towards feeling into your body into like you know feeling your senses in the world into like recognizing yourself as you know uh not just the self but like yourself in relation to nature and other people and you know being affected and moved by the people around you because then you're you are experiencing reality and not just the description of reality that you have been passed down you know yeah, well, you have to you have to see that the thing you're being told to do is not reasonable. Because yeah. if you because if you think because if you think what you're be, what's being asked of you is reasonable, then when you fail to meet that expectation, you turn that into inward, right? Into yeah, inward. I need to change, or I need to punish myself further for my failure to meet this very reasonable expectation. Yeah, and I think the but first like, thing I do is you have to be like, oh, this is an unrealistic, <laughs> this is an unreasonable expectation. <laughs> Right. And the, and the reason that you're able to realize it, though, is that it's like a felt sense, like, you know, it to be true in your own, in your own self, you know, this doesn't feel right. Well, there's a reason. <laughs> yeah, and this is it. And this is the thing I think, like, a bunch of people like to, like, you know, um, be negative about stuff like somatic experiencing and, you know, or whatever, like, th that's empirical. That's an empirical approach right? You yeah. collect data. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's now the, the data set is only good for you because it's your data, yeah. but that's yeah. fine. That's valid, right? Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be infinitely generalizable to be true. <laughs> so you, yeah, you empiricism is in many ways the, an, the antidote, but the problem <laughs> is everyone's, but everyone is pretend, pretending to be the empiricists, right? 
liberal yeah. economists who want to like flat want to be like well you know you're you're a cog and you work in the shoe factory and then you die get away um right. you know those people also are claiming they are deeply empiricist <laughs> and the true inheritors of science <laughs> um so it's a crowded yeah. field and reducing anytime that you reduce the specifics to a generalization you're doing yourself a disservice and the people around you a disservice because like you know i'm so i'm an artist and i'm in artistic fields probably you can tell based on how i'm speaking right now <laughs> but um you know we talk a lot in writing and we were actually just studying orwell's um literary essays and he was talking about politics and uh, the English language and he was saying like there's something happening this was in writing has become such more vague at that moment in time like people writing about politics and writing about these big ideas their writing has become so like um, indecipherable that that the meaning is lost basically and so he talks about how you know it's through detail and through specifics through the specific experience that you are living that you find meaning and understanding and you know it's easy to discount that when you zoom out and you say like okay well here's all the empirical data and here's you know here's the generalization of what everybody is experiencing but i think sometimes which i think is incredibly helpful in some fields like you know in medical fields and i don't know different things i can't I'm going to generalize if I'm talking about this because I don't know enough about it. <laughs> but I think it's valuable to look at specifically how you are interacting with something and, and, and how it, um, you know, how you are moved by detail. And um, that is a good antidote to the over to the blurred lines. Like he had such a good, I should find it actually. Because that's like he's kind of pontificating on like the newspeak idea there, right? Like that that there's a, there's this erosion in discourse. Yeah, yeah, he's talking, he's talking about uh -huh. how things are becoming more pat. Yeah, the erosion of discourse, the erosion of like, like he talks about people using like Greek and Latin terms to um, make themselves sound more intellectual, basically to like, you know. Um, and using, like he says, using pretentious diction and, you know, what is so bad about, you know, it's harder to find the exact word for what you mean. Like, do the work. Try and yeah, find and, it. And speak speak plainly. Yeah. Yeah. But the um, the sentence that he talks about, this phraseology is needed when you want to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. You know, and it's through the mental pictures of them that we see the detail that we're impacted by. It. So part of the reason that like in this episode, what is we don't feel like heartbroken, really, that Karen dies because it's so generalized. And then he says, you know, the inflated style is itself a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outlines and covering up all the details. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. So, yeah, just made me think when you were saying like blurring the details and, and stuff like that. As much as I hate to go out on the words of a Trotskyite, <laughs> Trotsky <-ate, laughs> I think that's as good a place as any to leave. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Do you have, anyone have any any finishing any closing thoughts? 
No, I'm good. Um, I, I hated this episode and it made me angry, but um, it, the more that when I was initially listening, I was like, oh, this this might be really hard because, you know, they so eh, exploitatively tug at the heartstrings, like, directly. But the more crude and obvious what they were doing became to me, the more that I could um, manage it. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I actually don't have a, I don't have an overall all message for that. That was just it's where you're at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the episode made me sick to my stomach listening to it. I often think when I go back and listen, I'm like, I can't believe I listened to these blindly. You know, there's no other way to listen to them for me, but that's just the way I listen to them. But I, I appreciate the opportunity to think critically about it now and uh, look at it through the lens of different theorists and you know, hear your perspectives on it as well. It's it's great. So yeah, thank you all so much for listening and for giving of your time. We really appreciate it. If you want to find out more about Adventures in Ideology, you can find us on our webpage, adventuresinideology.ca. You can find us at Ideology Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And please look up our Patreon, uh, Patreon Adventures in Ideology. Uh, we're right there, and uh, we if we go deeper on those believe it or not we go deeper so <laughs> please come weirder weirder deeper and weirder yeah so please uh, if you like this at all please check that out that's a good time you, you'll you'll have fun i promise and it also helps to produce the show so until next time may god bless you and keep you <laughs> what am i doing <laughs> any talk of religion and i just become <laughs> Anyway. You, you default to the mechanistic the, old the father and the son. <laughs> yeah. I believe me. in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. <laughs> Good autonomic response, even. Yeah, it just, just, just kicks in. <laughs> Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>